Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Crystal Fault, editor of the Toolkit, and my guest today is director Karin Kusama talking about her new film, Destroyer, which is starring Nicole Kidman. And the Toolkit Podcast today is sponsored by Fox Searchlight Pictures presenting The Favorite. It's nominated for five Golden Globe Awards, including Best Actress Olivia Coleman, Best Supporting Actresses Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz, Best Screenplay, and Best Picture of the Year. It's also nominated for three Screen Actors Guild Awards, 14 Critics' Choice Awards, including Best Picture, and one of AFI's 10 Best Pictures of the Year for your consideration in all categories, the favorite. And now my conversation with Karin Kusama. It's a type of film I absolutely love, these really tight crime noir films, and I feel like they've always been part of American film history, but they don't, it's like... This film fills like a huge void that we don't have anymore. Like mm-hmm. you know, throughout my whole life, I always watch these things, and it's, it's it, they don't really make these anymore, do they? Yeah, it's an interesting um, moment we're in that you know this kind of investigative crime story in which the larger crimes sort of become revealed and and are as much personal as they are out in the world. Um, I think that's what we looked for from the best noir films was the sense of dread that it was human beings themselves who were going to be the biggest, you know, transgressors. It also, it doesn't seem like the genre is irrelevant now. I mean, your film is this wonderful thing about, Mm. uh, of, um, this character putting herself through hell to holding herself accountable mm-hmm. for for uh, events in the past, mm-hmm. and and <laughs> it just seems as if I mean, it, we, I, I'm looking forward to talking to this character, but this is, is something where this film it comes from a long tradition, but just feels so right now and feels so relevant. I right think now. so too. I agree. I feel like um, part of why I wanted to make the movie in the first place was that sense that it was it was so present in the culture right now that we're craving moral accountability and and not seeing it you know we're we're what we're craving something we're not getting in return um and that's hard um to reckon with and so i found this story really appealing because i did feel like we were witnessing a character come to some sense of need to be personally responsible, uh, you know, even even late in the game, you realize um, it's not too late. <laughs> What's amazing is, and this script is um, is by uh, Phil Hay and uh, Matt 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 Manfredi. Yep, and I believe you're married to one of these two. Gentlemen. I am to <laughs> Phil, <laughs> but um, it's a it's a wonderful script. But one of the things about this story that really really impressed me is, is you know, we always think about the crime and the twists and the turns and stuff. But each one of these, this character is is, is not. This isn't. This isn't someone that's. This, they're having a come to Jesus moment, but they're not exactly someone who is uh, of the upright. And, no. And and she feels such this need to do it, and each one of these twists and turns or new little elements, it, it makes it that much more difficult and hard, and so related to character to have this crime story in each little beat be something that we is so tied to character and so tied to uh, mm. what her struggle is yeah. which isn't necessarily you know it, i never question that she's trying to do this but mm-hmm. you know 
one one could wonder why she's not just walking away. And it's part mm -hmm. of it is this thing is just so so beautifully structured. And I don't think people understand with these these films like that. That's really hard to get something which which each beat is like that. I so agree, and I think. Um, you know, something about Phil and Matt's particular gifts as as screenwriters is that they make they make this complexity um, sort of look deceptively simple or look deceptively easy to pull off, but they work in such a um, I want to say like sort of total way where they really ask they have to ask of every scene this series of questions as if they're interrogating the scenes themselves, you know, is this, what is this doing for the audience? How is this getting this audience closer or farther away from the character? Are we, are we sort of fulfilling this larger mission? And, um, and that was partially, I think they were able to hold themselves to this idea of the crime story being about a detective investigating a crime, but over the course of the film, you start to feel like she's hunting herself. And they would go back to that, like, are we in line with what we had set out to do? Is this accomplishing that? And um, I think it largely really succeeds in that way um, in feeling like as the story progresses and as we get more details that fill in a narrative puzzle, we are also getting so much closer to the character. It's fair to say there's almost a circular kind of like eats itself motion to this mm -hmm. in, in, that, in that way that it almost has to, it's so tied to her and mm. how, you know, and in, in, in what she's doing. Because I mean, there's part of it is, is like trying to reconcile what happened in the past, but really she really does end up kind of like hunting herself absolutely. in this way. Absolutely, absolutely. And I was gonna say that I think part of this idea of circles and patterns um, was very much kind of in keeping with this idea that, you know, even just the act of watching movies is mm. this reflective and reflexive act. Mm. And so I would always say to Nicole Kidman, who was playing Aaron, each of these encounters has the quality of Aaron meeting with a new person from her past or a new person mm -hmm. in her life in the present and feeling like she's looking into a mirror. And I'm hoping that if we can see the anxiety and the, and the, and the despair for some of us of what it means to look in the mirror, mm -hmm. the audience might be pushed to um, consider how we should be looking in the mirror. Is that also, because all these noirs that do use flashbacks, it's uh, well, the yeah. great ones, it's always like, that's like this device that they use yeah. and how they're going to do it. Is that, was that kind of the, I mean, I, I, maybe actually we should take a step back. Obviously, you, you know Matt and Phil well, yeah. and they, they've written for you before. Yep. Uh, in terms of the shape, and you're probably aware they're working on this, is something yes, that yes, is something yes. good. In, in terms of your involvement, is this something where when it starts to look like it's taking shape, you're you're becoming part of that team in terms of the structure and things like that? Is are you? Yeah, they, they walked me through at the outline phase. They walked uh -huh. me through every scene of the movie as they were conceiving it at the time. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I was able to to, um, to weigh in with areas that I thought, oh, I know I'm going to amplify this. <laughs> I know this is going to get, you know, mm -hmm. bigger or, you know, 
smaller depending on where my interests are. And, um, and so with that in mind, they really took to writing that first draft with those thoughts in mind. And so in many respects, what it created was this great opportunity to get a first draft that I felt largely really happy with mm -hmm. and could start really digging into the making of the thing as opposed to the discussion and argument over the thing itself. Mm -hmm. You know, we were able to just sort of dive in. And so back to that, what I, where I was going with this was it was, was the flashbacks because mm -hmm. I mean, I, there is events 17 years in the past mm -hmm. that are that are weighing over this, and so yes, it's not exposition. It's 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 part of her conflict, which is why we kind of go back into that. But that idea of when we're going to go and how it's going to be juxtaposed to the present might there's lots of different ways of doing that yep I, I'm wondering what the guiding principle was here in terms of how you were going to organize that yep because it feels to me it, it comes back to this issue of what we were just talking about in terms of Nicole's character yep. and and this idea of it folding on itself almost yeah um, I think that's an interesting question I mean I think the the concept of toggling between present and past was always baked into the script and, and um, largely in the order in which we see it on, in the finished film, although there were a few flashbacks that got switched around. Um, but I think, the, I think that the general principle was that she's on, she's sort of encountering these characters from her past members of this gang that she was embedded with as an undercover agent 17 years prior. And each one of them is meant to be sort of a station of the cross for her. Mm -hmm. And I think the general concept was each time she sets off into this investigation, we're going to get a piece of information that helps set up either who we're seeing or who we're about to see, and just add further context to, you know, sort of her her relationships to all of these people. And in some ways, you know, the, the flashbacks, funnily enough, you know, they're so often accused of, of being kind of narratively dead. But to me, it's the flashbacks that help kind of dial up the tension in a way because a question starts to emerge about her reliability and her, um, I want to say sort of her moral rightness that then complicates everything we're watching about her, her investigation in the present. Mm -hmm. And so I think that toggling was very deliberately meant to sort of take us through a character, go into the past, take us through a new character, go into the past. And there's an element here of also um, L.A., this mm. odyssey through L.A. Uh, it's been a while since I've lived in L.A., but mm. it seems to be very location-specific. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. And you also seem to be showing us a very distinct part of L.A. I'm wondering if you talk about that, that idea of this being L.A. as a character here. I, that's, o that's overdone, L.A. as a character. But this, this I get what you're saying, But though. there's an element of, like, what parts of of the city are you showing us and why that as it relates to, to this kind of odyssey that you've created with Well, I, I mean, I think the fantasy of Los Angeles, of course, is Hollywood and Beverly Hills and Bel Air and these places that we've come to know exist and they do exist and they're, they're storied um, in and of themselves. But what I was interested by was the sense of 
real pe people in LA and how, how, how largely divorced they are from the entertainment industry. You know, it's just our most visible export. Mm -hmm. um, but in fact, when you live in LA for a long time, and, and I can't believe I'm at 15 years now. Um, You're Midwest, right? So you moved to the region. Yeah, yeah and, uh, and I had lived in New York for 17 years. So I feel kind of like I was always gonna be a New Yorker until I moved to LA. And now I really consider myself an Angelino. And you know, what strikes one about being in Los Angeles is how, I mean, just incredibly ethnically diverse it is. It's so, you can find yourself in whole worlds, whether it's Little Armenia or Frogtown or Chinatown or Japantown or Inglewood or Boyle Heights. There are just so many neighborhoods that you feel kind of like this is its own discrete city, own discrete world with its own rules and its own languages and its own kind of sense of cultural logic. and. I feel like in a funny way, our obsession with Hollywood and um, Beverly Hills and, and those, those places where we imagine people have a lot of money, um, it's just a kind of literal and metaphorical whitewashing of the truth of Los Angeles, which is that it's one of the most diverse places on earth. And, um, and so it was really interesting. We'd always imagined that she lived on the east side of LA. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just cool to get a chance to really location scout for those places and and then also, you know, um, explore the idea of Palos Verdes and making that kind of drive down through places like San Pedro and just there's there's a sort of industrial and then of course the desert like mm -hmm. that is a huge part of kind of the identity of Southern California. And so to, to get to explore all of that just felt um, maybe like in LA we don't see as often. Because there's also just the desert part being on the east side and stuff is also, we are kind of, not just the open desert, but like also like commun desert communities kind oh, of right around. Yeah, which are often very, you know, when we think about the desert, we so often think of Palm Springs. Mm -hmm. But really, I mean, for the most part, it's a pretty uh, economically depressed and and just unforgiving terrain to put people to live. Mm -hmm. And yet lots of people live out there. Right. And so it's a little bit like, oh man, there's this kind of depleted, um, sun-drenched, just kind of desiccated quality about some of these places. And to me, it made perfect sense that we understand that that's where she's from. You know? and there's not, you're a very economical filmmaker, so I, I mean, I'm not telling you, you don't have to have her driving everywhere. <laughs> you don't have to, but there's an element of her journey and, and being right. in that car and going from these places that seems to be integral to how you saw her story and how you saw your movie. Totally, I think, you know, the thing about Los Angeles and the, and, and I, I don't want to make, I, I don't want to claim that I've made a movie about living in LA, mm -hmm. so therefore you always have to be in your car with these <laughs> characters. Although when you do live in LA, the amount of time you spend in your car is actually pretty profound. Mm -hmm. And it and it and it's one of the things that for me is most troubling about Los Angeles. Like um, all these people sitting in traffic alone in their vehicles, um, looking over at each other like, 
you know, it's another hour and 10 before I get home. I, but I felt like there was this sense of odyssey to the script and to the character's real arc mm. emotionally. And that we had to feel the sense that things took time. You know, getting across town takes time. Mm. And there's a frustration to that, that I know, I know that there are gonna be viewers who just feel like, ugh, I don't wanna be subjected to the time it takes. But for me, it felt like a more real evocation of what she was really moving toward. There's something kind of baked into, and, and we can talk about this also in terms of your filmmaking, but obviously it also applies to what we're talking about here, but also Nicola's performance. Um, there's a tiredness. There's a, one gets this feeling that the character doesn't sleep yeah. What she does is and, and, she and, barely eats and you make us feel that you make mm -hmm. us feel that kind of like she's propelling herself to do this but yeah. like walking is difficult yeah the journey is difficult it's tired and and that's a that's a concept but you make us feel that and Nicole <laughs> makes us feel yeah. that in an incredible way yeah. in a way you know, one almost, the only equivalent I can think of is like the, the, those, those 15 round boxing yep. that they're barely holding on, but you're making us really yep. feel that exhaustion. Of yeah, and I recognize that there's something demanding about that of an audience, but I guess for me, I just feel like the character was sort of born into and grows up into literal and figurative states of deprivation mm -hmm. and I feel like we all know so many people, if they're not, if, if they're not just us, mm -hmm. plainly, there's so many people close to us who, who suffer from that sense of de deprivation. And I guess I just felt like I wanted to understand that better, you know? And so there is something really broken about her. You know, she, she's um, in some respects facing the end of something in her and it becomes a pretty profound end. What about, because um, I do want to talk about Nicole and her performance, but but what about that from a filmmaking standpoint? You know, because uh -huh. there's a, there's another element here, because I don't, this film is enthralling, so we need to stop making this sound like it's- Thank this, you, you know, I it, appreciate that. Because, because it, what I we're, appreciate that a lot. Because what we're talking about also is, is that then you're dialing in this intensity that isn't coming from in a lot of noirs. It's a it's a it's a quick cut. It's it's right, it's right, a right. You it, it's kind of coming ingrained from these things. Yeah. And she's in these intense situations. And intense states. Yeah. And, and so part of it is less that we're tired driving around all the time. It's more that she's entering these things in pain and in struggle. Absolutely. And and then it becomes this intensity. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit because it's a widescreen movie. Um, yeah. You are doing, I mean, it's not long takes, but you're not doing a lot of this with the cut. You're making, us, right, right, you're making it right, happen. Right. I wonder if you can tell. I mean, I feel like um, the act of looking to me is so charged. And when I watch something that I feel has been, um, and, and I say this knowing that there are so many different reasons that movies can end up like this, but when I watch movies that feel kind of overworked in the cutting room and sort of jazzed up with a lot of techniques, but not a lot of real reason to be. I just feel a kind of hollowness there. And I think it's, it's demanding to ask an audience to watch a character 
that they have a questionable sense of affinity for, and then not also give that audience the chance to find for themselves in some isolated, long moments, moments of redemption or grace. Mm-hmm. You know, like like quick, like super fast cut movies about irredeemable characters mm-hmm. are just like so last on my list of things <laughs> I want to watch. And so I recognize that there's something demanding about the style, but I also feel that there's there are audiences out there who don't experience it as demanding. They experience it as um, rich and complex. Mm. And, um, and, you know, I think on a filmmaking level, there were moments where I knew, okay, when the first bank robbery starts, things are going to shift, mm-hmm. you know, stylistically, in that we're really, we're, we're in a, a kind of real world version, I hope, of this action sequence. You know, it's not like criminal masterminds and Navy SEALs at war with one another. It's more like small time criminals and cops who are encountering their first legitimate frightening shootout. I was like that was like that one cop when she goes to Nicole, she goes, Are we gonna wait for backup? I was kind of like I'm used to I'm used to the like yeah. I, I was like I know how these heists work in these movies. Yeah. Not like Yeah, you know. yeah, exactly. And that was the thing is there was just a sense that um that the movie retained some sense of authenticity but also have moments where mm. it became sort of thrilling and spontaneous seeming mm. just because that's part of what happens is she I hope people watch the movie and and can legitimately say I don't really know what's going to happen next. I hope you take this as a compliment, but some of some of that stuff, the heist stuff, uh, reminded me of um, Catherine Bigelow's movie from '91. Mm. Um, you know, Point well, Break. It, I it, mean, it's one of my favorite movies of all okay, time. Okay, good. But I mean, there is that there is that kind of thrust in the middle of this. I mean, you're a different yeah. filmmaker. She's. But I mean, it, there, there's this intensity of that, and letting yeah. us feel that. And even just the sun-drenched kind of LA. Yeah, totally. Of it, uh, you know, and totally. It's so funny. I was asked to choose some films for like an LA noir festival at the American Cinematheque that's coming up, and and my film will, will play as part mm-hmm. of that, which is so awesome. And I had come up with, um, I mean, another really influential movie, To Live and Die in L- mm-hmm. LA, and Cutter's Way. And had just completely forgotten about Point Break. And I was like, oh, my God, I feel like it's like I forgot that I had a sibling or something. Because I just feel like, oh, my God, well, Point Break, it's almost too big, mm-hmm. you know, for, for itself somehow with me. Yeah. Because, um, you know, there's another thing. Like, you know, I'm someone, I'm a, I'm a North, Northeast liberal who is in real life terrified of guns mm-hmm. but watches these movies all the time sure. and has no problem watching them and I'm not just talking about morally I'm just talking about like I'm not mm-hmm. I'm used to and you made me fear a gun mm. in the way that I fear a gun in real life oh I it, love hearing I, that I mean I'm sad to hear that no but, it, but, but, but there was well, I mean there's one scene we don't have to give it away which right. could be it's you're setting right. the tables pretty yeah you, right it's literally a loaded gun that yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but I mean but let's talk about the heist though because I, there's an element here I'm wondering if you just talk a little bit how you shot that because it, it, it feels I had read something about it being very practical and you only have limited takes but I mean yeah there's I, there's something you're doing here beyond just your filming that I, I think the way that you're even doing these gun scenes like how are is it like a practical thing it or? is it's like for me um, I just feel like we see these action movies where even if the effects 
in CGI are pretty real mm -hmm. or really well done. What's not happening are is 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 something for the performers. They're not able to really hear and feel what's happening in in the room when you know when people shoot ammunition. And what I really kind of just had to accept was that though it would probably be faster and easier to do a, a CGI approach to those scenes, in the end, when you can hear what it sounds like for blanks to go off mm -hmm. um, at even a quarter or a half of their usual volume and, and feel what, you know, the kind of the ejection of matter into air, it it's startling. I mean, it's really disturbing. <laughs> and, you know, like Tatiana had said to me, who plays Petra, Tatiana Maslani, during that bank scene, um, while we were while we were getting all of her footage, you know, she she was dealing with live fire and, and she just said, you know, I just I'm just part of me just wants to like sob doing mm. this. And I said, I get it, you know, like the destruction these machines place ordinary people in mm -hmm. day after day is utterly mind-boggling and that we haven't come to a more sensible understanding of how to deal with that mm -hmm. is is truly mind-blowing to me and and so I wanted people to feel like the impacts of mm -hmm. it all because it's just so noisy it smells you know there's mm -hmm. so much um so much chemical stuff entering the air when you mm -hmm. when you shoot ammunition and I just wanted people to get the sense of like it's pretty gross actually two other things of, um, well I want to make sure we have time to talk about Nicole's mm -hmm. performance but there, there, there's another element here um, that about this kind of there's something unsettling about your film and mm -hmm. in, in, in I, I call him the villain Silas mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and the actor his name's Toby I'm, I'm Toby I, Kebble I, yeah. um, in, fascinating because I mean, yeah, he's evil, but he's not the smartest guy. Nope. And he's not the most powerful guy, but nope. there's something so wildly. And he's also not that. He plays it small. He's not right, like right, the, right, 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 right. It's not this right. big. In fact, he's like six two yeah. and very imposing physically. But also, I mean, but also the acting isn't like this, like like Gary. Absolutely. Gariel. But yet there is something so menacing and out of control about him. I think it's partially this one thing I don't want to give away. Yeah. Where, where uh, the way that you're introducing us to him. Yes. It's, it, it's it's something where it's like if I, it, it all doesn't add up to how I feel. <laughs> you know, right, which is right, that like right, I am right. terrified of this guy. Right, and I think that you. Um, kind of hit upon a couple of things that are key is a couple of things that actually inform what makes him scary. He's not a criminal mastermind. He is not all-powerful. He's not really particularly remarkable, except when he can, he exerts power on people more vulnerable than him. And I think that was the key to that character. He could play it small, as you say, because in Toby's mind, playing Silas, he was like, but Silas is so small. He's so, he's such a fucking worm. And I, I just appreciated that, that he wasn't trying to be Hannibal Lecter, mm -hmm. you know? He was actually trying to be like, 
just like kind of a regular asshole, mm -hmm. you know, like, and that the one thing that distinguished, distinguished him in Aaron Bell's mind or somewhere deep in her psyche was that he saw some of himself in her mm. and he wasn't wrong. And that terrifies her so deeply that it is part of his power over her is that he sees her. Mm. And there's something just awful about being seen by the wrong person. There's also, I think, probably built, built into this and it's the wonderful thing of the convention of the undercover cop too yes. is, is that they're on that boat. Yes, <laughs> you, yes, you know, exactly. Like so whereas he's not exerting, like, you know, he is, they're under his control in that sense. Yes. And, and it's... Um, and they need to be. Yeah. That's part of the performance yeah. that they're giving. Yeah. So I want to talk about Nicole for a second, but, but was this always, you know, I was thinking about this, um, was this always something that Phil and Matt, and I guess you were always thinking of in terms of a, a, a woman lead, a female um, lead? I think initially when they were talking about just sort of a structural, um, a, a, a narratively unconventional structure mm -hmm. and this toggling between past and present, I think then it was more like an amorphous um, kind of uh, structural conceit without a main character. And so it could never come together until they really, and, and I think we all just agreed you know, what would make this interesting is is a woman at the center of it, you know, a parent, a mother. Giving her a 16-year-old daughter, I think, is really a big part of this yes. with a parallel of those young girls that are with Silas. Yes. And, and there's that element because, you know, one thing I instantly, sorry to interrupt, but, it, no, it, there, it, but there's an element, even just the fact that um, Aaron's daughter is clearly young. Like, it's oh. clearly, you did not cast the 18-year-old. We cast the 16-year-old. Yeah, which is a choice. My wife's a UPM, and <laughs> she's watching this last night with me. And she, goes, <laughs> she goes, they really worked with a 16-year-old. That's not, e that's restrictions I know. And she, for this type of movie. And that, I know. And there's, um, you know, she, she just finished a movie with a bunch of 12-year-olds. And she's oh. like, but, you know, she was saying the obvious choice there would be go with someone, let's say, yep. 18, 19, yep. and have them play down. But no, she's got the baby fat. She's And that yeah. makes me, it makes us feel so uncomfortable comfortable in that parallel story with a daughter I and know. a mother. That's part of the reason I asked is that that in point becomes almost this thing uh, of being a mother that feels all new to this yeah. genre. Yeah, well, because there's the panic of really watching a child, watching someone who you could say, okay, yeah, she's at the cusp of adulthood, but it it's, this is a kid. Yeah. And to what degree will this kid just replicate the mistakes of her mother? And to what degree do any of us feel that fear as parents, you know, that, um, or as children? You know, either that we become our parents or that, that our, our children become some version of us. And for some of us, that's a terrifying prospect. And for Erin, I think she needed to be looking into the eyes of a kid that still had baby fat in her cheeks and still was like, learning how to talk to grown-ups in a constructive way, you know? Like there there should be a sense that she never really learned it from Aaron. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's her absorption of the outside world that's allowing her to attempt to communicate with Aaron. And that that relationship was, for Phil and Matt, the, the reason for being for the whole that movie. Helped, that helped pull things That together, organized yeah. everything because, you know, part of her journey on a literal narrative mm -hmm. um, level, you know, 
it couldn't really just live in this like one one ex-gang member mm. after another. It couldn't really realistically hold water, I don't think, if that's how it was structured. And so the fact that she's always sort of trying to repair this cumbersome family drama that I think initially we think is um, meant to be, I don't know, just like color. Mm. It, it it grows in stature as something about her investigation sort of starts to be called into question in a more total way. And so then her her behavior as a parent starts to to actually really take on some weight. And back just to the credit to the script, and effortlessly those dovetail together, which is not always, one can almost usually feel the seams with something like that. I totally and, agree. So uh, Nicole Kidman is not who you one thinks of when one thinks of this role. I um, and I don't. My, I read somewhere that it wasn't wasn't the, the road that you were thinking yeah. about. Um, and so there is this element of like her embodying this, yeah. embodying this misery, which yeah. she physicalized in her yeah. voice yeah. and her thing. And then, and I just want to make sure, and also in contextualizing all of that, there's the 17 year thing, which is always tricky. Yep. But the degree to which you went is almost like the backstory of uh -huh. how much this has weighed on her. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's 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 fascinating, but I, you know, obviously your lead is always a collaborator, but there's something yeah. here that's so embodied yeah. in her performance and her physicality that it's incredible. Yeah. I wonder if you just talk about that process. And yeah, I mean, I felt like for me, this was probably the most intense collaboration I've had with an actor, uh, perhaps alongside Michelle Rodriguez, who had not acted before. And so I think, though, the irony of comparing those two things is that part of, of Nicole's gift is that she never shows up like, um, oh, I got my bag of tricks. I'm just going to go into my bag of tricks. I've got this all figured out. She's very, very open about not always finding her way through. Like, she's very open about saying, I think we need to explore here. I'm not quite sure what to do. And that um, honesty actually makes my job so much easier because we can sort of stop and say, okay, let's talk. Let's figure out what are, what, what are we saying about this character? Who is she in this moment? And we can have much more open-ended conversations if it's not about me trying to move towards saying you should feel more confidence, mm -hmm. but it's simply a creative conversation about what are we doing here? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it, it, the, the, the ego support wasn't quite as necessary because Nicole already does the work of kind of being honest with herself about not always being sure if she can pull something off. And that's how she framed it to me initially. Mm -hmm. That's why in many respects she convinced me of how right she was. She was such a searcher. Mm -hmm. And when we were working together, I just felt like I could do, I, in retrospect, it's so remarkable. I could send her, I sent her videos of packs of coyotes running through the Silver Lake Reservoir and articles about crime gangs that functioned more like mind control cults and crime photos of just like city streets, you know, that were very um, banal. And all of that, I think was something she was open to absorbing mm -hmm. as in informing something about her character. 
you know, I, I sent her like entire albums of, by Caius, you know, like I, I, I just sort of was like, you know, this is probably not your speed, this desert metal, but I think it'd be worth it for you to just hear what the sounds of the time were like. Mm-hmm. And, um, what it's like to be in a room at three o'clock in the afternoon with a bunch of people getting high that are dangerous with guns and, and then are listening to this music. Yeah, they're listening to that know, music. Like, think yeah. about what that yeah. state of yeah. mind must be. Yeah. <laughs> but what about the physical transformation in mm. that sense of figuring? I imagine both of you, and then also I'm sure you've got makeup collaborators and yes. that decide that decision of how far to go with yes, that. Yes, yes. Because one thing that I instantly latched on to, I mean, she's a beautiful woman, so there's, yeah, yeah. there is that element that you're always like, oh, that's Nicole Kidman. But, right. but the thing that I instantly latched on to is um, one always doesn't realize how important one's eyes are as being a star. Yeah. And you start, as soon as you start seeing her eyes in a different way, yeah. you start becoming aware of how much that was such an essence of who she is, yeah. who, who I've known for the last 25 years yeah, on screen. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so there's something about even just, even she's haggard, mm-hmm. she's got the voice, mm-hmm. she's, she's, she's defeated, but there's, there's this element of the, the physical transformation of the face, in particular around the eyes, that um, it's a really bold choice mm-hmm. to, for all of you to go that, that far. You know, she was the one who drove it um, at the beginning. She really said, you know, I just, I know that if I'm going to, do this right, I cannot be Nicole Kidman playing this role. I have to be this character inside and out. And I think that means that first and foremost, you're going to really need to fuck with my skin because she has perfect skin. I mean, she has very rare, in, in some ways, our makeup artist had a kind of perfect blank canvas to work with because she doesn't really have pigmentation, sunspots. Um, she just has a sort of perfectly smooth white face that is has been religiously protected by sunscreen since she was like 12 years old, since she lived in Australia. And I guess skin cancer runs in her family. So she was like really, in some ways, like that was the first thing she said was, I need to look radically different, I think. And then we can dial ourselves back to figure out what the past was. Because the, the, a big part of our conversation just sort of um, in, in, in thinking about an overall approach was that she would play both roles. And ironically, the initial concern was, can we make her look, you know, 29? That, that young, yeah. And the irony was that wasn't that difficult. <laughs> I um, thought the same thing last night. I it was, was like, so I totally weird. believe her as yeah, being the late I mean, 20s. Yeah, <laughs> like she, because she does so much physical work in terms of how she approaches character, she just starts to move a little bit more like a person who's kind of discovered their womanhood and discovered their sort of sexual power. And she just had um, more of an insouciant kind of quality as the young Aaron. The act, just the, the the acting, the body positioning with her and Sebastian Stan. One, it, it, that's just one realizes how much one can dial in, just in terms of where she is sexually and where yeah. she is in terms of attraction and where she is in totally. her life. Just in, just in the way she's positioned to him. Totally, and the way it, she was moving through rooms. You know, there right. was just like this slinkiness to yeah. her, and she just. Um, we were able to get to that only by sort of going, I think, as hard as we did with her present day look. You know, we, I think Nicole would have gone to something more extreme. And I said, you know, I think we're at the outer edges of what the audience is gonna 
tolerate just given what they already know of you. Mm. And so, you know, what what I like when the movie is working for people is 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 for people to sort of be waiting for Nicole Kidman mm-hmm. to show up and then realizing, oh, I that is who I am watching. I am watching Nicole. And then in those flashback scenes, starting to get that sense of this bigger kind of cosmic question of the movie is who, who she used to be. Mm-hmm. Oh. I have to let you go. I could talk about this movie forever. Oh, oh I, but, love but, but, I love it. I love it. Thank uh, you. Thank you so much. Um, remind me, this, this is coming out right around, it's, it's that Christmas weekend, right? It, it's Christmas yeah. Day. Oh, Christmas Merry Day. Christmas. Well, yeah, okay. um, <laughs> please tell all your friends who want some counter-programming that I will this take is my their... Fa- I will take my father on the 26th. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect. But yeah, in New York and L.A., and then mm. it opens wide in January. It's a wonderful film. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you.